Let's pray. Lord, it's not that we've come to your house. We understand that we are your house. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is, everyone who believes, sons of Abraham by faith, you know how we love to be indwelt by you, and though we recognize we are unworthy of it, it causes us to rejoice. And it causes us to think deeply about ourselves and whether or not we are worthy vessels for you to indwell and for you to shine your holy light and truth to the nations. Lord, we want to be more of that. And we know, Father, that you have counted us as righteous, even as your Son is righteous, and we rejoice in that. We also aspire to it at, at another level, that we would grow in the knowledge of Christ and grow in uh, the likeness of Christ so that we can more faithfully image forth the glory of God. And so we ask you, Father, now to speak to us by your word. I pray that you would fill us with your truth, protect us from error, and cause us to delight in the things that you have for us today. And may it all point us to Jesus Christ, our need for him, our satisfaction in him, and his love for us, his people. We give you praise for it now in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 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 So if you have your Bible with you, if you could just take that and turn to Romans uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 17 through 25. Let's stand together in honor of God's word, and we will read our passage for this morning together. I'm afraid this is not going to be a Christmas sermon, but if you wanted to consider Abraham Father Christmas or something like that. But uh, in a couple of weeks, we will get to uh, focusing on the incarnation of Christ, and that's going to be a sweet, wonderful time, especially our um, candlelight service, which you will hear more of this uh, at that service, and so uh, plan on being here for that. So now we're ready. Uh, Romans 4, 17 through 25, and... Here is what the Apostle Paul writes. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who lives, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, quote, so shall your offspring be, end quote. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, 
and raised for our justification. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Well, it's been a few weeks since our last time together in the book of Romans, uh, but we don't have time this morning to retrace our path, the path that we have walked so far into this book. If you're interested, you can find all the previous messages, 27 of them, uh, leading up to today uh, that you can find on the church app or on the website. Feel free to do that. But today, Paul would have us focus on Abraham one more time. He wants us to think about Abraham because he's still talking about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He has brilliantly and convincingly used the story of Abraham as the biblical grounds for that doctrine, the central doctrine of the Reformation, the central doctrine of the gospel, namely, once again, justification by faith alone. But what exactly was Abraham's faith like? If his faith is a model for our faith, if it's true that the salvation that we have is the same kind of salvation that Abraham had, then what was that faith like? What was his faith? What was, just, what was Abraham's faith like? Now, this is an important question because Paul is going to end this chapter by inviting us, like Abraham, to rest all our hope, all of our faith, in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. That's where we're going. We're going to that invitation to come and rest in the one who, rose, who raised Jesus from the dead. And so what kind of faith did Abraham have? This is what we're going to learn from these verses. Now, the passage before us easily breaks down into three parts, and so we're going to look at this as, number one, the root of Abraham's faith, number two, the resilience of Abraham's faith, and number three, the results of Abraham's faith. And so let's start with verse 17. Look at verse 17, and notice with me that Paul says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. This is God speaking to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. Now, you may remember that Abraham's original name was not Abraham, it was rather Abram. Abram. And interestingly, the name Abram means father of many. Father of many. Um... It's interesting, though, when he came out of Ur of the Chaldees and God was calling him to the promised land, he named him, um, named him Abram, father of many, and yet how many children did he have? He had exactly none. Not a one. And we know from our recent study of Genesis 15 that, that God promised Abram a son from whom would come many peoples and many nations. Nevertheless, after waiting for 40 years, he still did not have a son. Abram became wealthy. He was very well known. People would come from all over to camp near him. He was kind of the epicenter of that part of the world. They would come for protection 
He was an influential man. He had really grown in his stature and his respect or the respect of other men. But there was a problem. He had a name that said he had many children, and the reality was he didn't have any. Donald Gray Barnhouse, in his famous commentary on Romans, said regarding Abraham, it must have happened a hundred times or a thousand times, and each time more galling than the time before. A man would come and say, oh, father of many, congratulations. How many do you have? And the answer was always so humiliating to Abraham, none. And, and, and most of the time, much of the time, often, there, there must have been the half-concealed snort of humor at the incongruity between the fact that he had no children compared to the name that said he was a father of many. Abram must have steeled himself, Barnhouse says, for the question and for its reply, and he must have hated the situation with bitterness. Now, that's using sanctified imagination, but I think it's probably true. And this had to be very, very difficult for him. Father of many, father of none. He had multitudes of cattle. He had multitudes of servants. He had no children. And his name was father of many. Well, it seems clear to me that God was setting things up in such a way that in the end, when he would fulfill the promise he gave to Abraham and Sarah that a son would be born in their old age, it would be an indisputable act of God that no one could deny. A miracle. And that's the kind of faith Abraham had, namely a faith that believed that Yahweh is a powerful God and that everything he does is holy, righteous, and good. Therefore, he can be trusted with every circumstance. Let me say that again. God can be trusted with every circumstance you face, you face no matter what it is, whether it has to do with having children or not having children or whatever it is. He is trustworthy. This is the kind of faith that God calls for when, when we are blind to his sovereign purposes by the pain and perplexity of life. When you find yourself saying, why, God, why? More importantly, it's the kind of faith by which a sinner receives salvation. And that's what Paul's talking about, right? These four chapters, now next week we'll be in chapter 5, Lord willing. All of this has been about the gospel. All of it is about justification by faith alone. And so our salvation is relevant here. He's speaking about salvation. He's speaking about a faith that says, God, you have promised to give eternal life to all who believe in what they cannot see. Namely, that Jesus died in my place, that his sacrifice is more than sufficient to wash away all my sin and justify me in your sight so I can be forever reconciled to you. This is your promise. This is your promise, and I believe it with all my heart. 
That's the kind of faith Abraham had. And it's the kind of faith that we all had on the day we first believed in Jesus. The kind of faith that abides with us until we see him face to face. We believe and we keep on believing. We repent and keep on repenting. This is the kind of faith that God wants in our lives because it's the kind of faith that, that was the means by which Abraham received justification. He was declared righteous by God. Now notice with me how Paul describes God here. Verse 17, he calls him the God who gives life to the dead. And isn't that our great hope? That God gives life to the dead? I mean, you see, God is unlike the gods of this world. He's unlike the idols of the Gentiles. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. I mean, pray to them all you want. They're deaf to you. And they have feet, They can't walk. And they have a mouth that doesn't speak. And God warns in the Old Testament, those who make them will become like them. But the God of Abraham, the true and only God, verse 17, is the God of power. How powerful is he? Well, he is powerful enough to raise the dead. Now, the the Bible speaks of different kinds of death, and God is powerful over all of them, each of them. This is why I asked Randy to read from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, just to get our hearts focused on resurrection. Only God can do that, and he has promised to do it for every one of his people. First of all, what kind of death are we talking about here? First, he is powerful enough to raise the sinner from spiritual death. What does that mean? Well, listen to how Paul describes people who are lost and without God in this world. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions, your trespasses and sins. In other words, you were separated from God and you are unresponsive to God. I remember the first funeral I went to was my grandfather, William Kirk, Bill Kirk, and I'd never seen a, a dead person before, and I was fearful to go into the, uh, the funeral home that day. I was only 12 or 13, and I was pretty close to my grandpa. And I remember kind of very cautiously working my way up to the casket. And I finally got there. I was by myself. My family was greeting with everyone else. And there was joy there because he loved Jesus And I walked up to the casket and I looked at his body and I went, he's not there. I mean, that's his body. But that's not my grandpa. He's alive. He is not dead. This is what God does for us spiritually. He raises us from the dead. He has the power. So when we think about spiritual deadness, what we're thinking about is the reality that we are separated and we are unresponsive. 
That was the case with my grandfather. We were separated from each other by a, 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 a gulf that could not be spanned as long as I'm alive. And he is unresponsive. I can speak to him all day. He will never, he'll never respond. And so it is with every person in their relationship with God before they are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. You were separated from God and unresponsive to God, and that is spiritual death. God is powerful over spiritual death. God can give life to the unbelieving dead heart. Second, he's powerful over physical death. And we understand this, right? I mean, if the Lord tarries, all of us are going to die physically. For example, both sets of my grandparents have died. In fact, both of my parents have died. And, and moreover, my wife's grandparents have died, and her parents have died as well. And, and the Bible says... It is appointed unto man to die once. And, and by the way, that precludes any kind of reincarnation. It is appointed for a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. There is a day when you are going to die, and it is God's appointed day. And, and God has ordained that day and all of your days before there was yet one of them. We read that just a few minutes ago. And so man dies. But for those who have been reconciled to God, who have been justified by faith, to be absent from the body is to be what, class? Present with the Lord and not present as dead. But present as alive and responsive perfectly, gloriously to God. Present with the Lord. One day, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies will be resurrected like a seed that is put into the ground and then it returns bearing fruit. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And by the way, we know that Abraham believed. Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. You know, he had never seen it before. But he believed that God had the power to raise the physically dead. because We know that because of how he trusted the Lord after Isaac was born and became a teenager. And God told Abraham to take the boy to the mountain and sacrifice him on the altar. And Abraham trusted God and obeyed. We won't rehearse that story, but you can read it in Genesis. And just before the knife plunged into the heart of Isaac, his only son, God stopped him. I mean, what kind of faith is that? I mean, he had every intention of plunging the knife into his son's heart. What kind of faith is that? What kind of faith did Abraham have that would motivate him or empower him to trust the Lord when he led his son to that altar? Well, we don't have to speculate. You know why? Because the author of Hebrews answers the question. What kind of faith did Abraham have? Well, Hebrews 11, 
Verse 17 reads as follows. And I'm going to hit a couple of scriptures here. But by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise, that's Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom, he, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, this is a perfect setup because God promised a son and said, not only are you going to have a son, but from that son will become so many people. There will be nations and so many people that they will be compared to the stars in the heaven and the sand on the sea. And here is God saying, take that son and sacrifice him. What kind of faith empowered Abraham to obey even though it looked as if obedience to God would mean the death of his son and the death of the promise. Well, the author of Hebrews answers, verse 19 of that same Hebrews 11, quote, and that faith, that faith was not, excuse me, let me back up. The author of Hebrews answers, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? Abraham probably never even heard of anyone being raised from the dead. And yet he believed. God, if you want me to do this, you've made a promise. I'm so convinced of that promise that if you're really going to have me do this, you, you, you must have the intention of raising him from the dead because you would not go back on your promise. He had every intention of killing his son. And by the way, does that, does that make you squirm a little bit in terms of human sacrifice? It should. It should. I think one of the reasons although the Bible doesn't explain it this way, I think one of the reasons he makes this story so heinously clear is because while God prevented Abraham from killing his only son, 2,000 years later, when Jesus was on the earth, there was another father, another son, God the Father and God the Son. And when it came time to nail him to the cross, the Father did not rescue him for your sakes. There should be something that happens in our hearts when we think about the trauma of even being asked to kill your only son. And then for the sake of your salvation, God actually does it. We become so jaded, so calloused, because we've heard the story of the cross so many times. But God is gracious to remind us and help us to see it afresh, I trust. And that faith was not a hypothetical faith. Paul tells us in verse 19, when Abraham considered his own body, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, the only possible conclusion is that they were as good as dead. They were as good as dead in terms of their ability to procreate. 
And there was no way this couple was ever going to produce a biological child since he was about 100 years old. And so we need to understand that Abraham believed God could and would resurrect, or in this case, restore the parts of their physical bodies that were as good as dead and needed to be alive and well in order to give birth to a child. And that's exactly what God did. He gave life where there was no life. God promised the impossible, and then God delivered the impossible. Paul wants us, Paul wants to remind us that raising the physical, the physically dead is no big deal for God. It's a big deal for us. It's no big deal for God. When he raises from people from the, the dead, he expends zero energy. And Paul says, verse 17, God is so powerful that he is able, listen carefully, to call things into existence that did not exist. I mean, it doesn't even have to be. And he can make it. This is creation language, right? This is creation language. The very first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and how did God create the heavens and the earth? He created it by the power of his word. Let there be. And there it was. Listen, beloved, Abraham and Sarah had a problem. And at times it seemed bigger than God. But they were wrong. And right now, you no doubt have problems, some of you very big problems. But they are not bigger than God. From the perspective of him who calls into existence things that do not exist, it is a very small thing. It's a very small thing, whatever that thing is. And God has called you to trust him. He's called you to trust him. But what kind of faith did Abraham have? He believed that the God who promised would be faithful to perform exactly as he had promised. Friends, do you have such faith? I mean, do you truly believe in a personal and supernatural God who is the giver and sustainer of all life? Have you entrusted all your hope for reconciliation with God to the one who raised Jesus from the dead? Abraham did. God made Abraham a promise. And Abraham believed. And God counted it as righteousness. God has made you a promise. Do you believe? You see, when God promised Abraham that he would have a son in his old age and that this son would become a multitude of nations, Abraham, Abraham knew how to respond. He knew how to respond because he knew God. He understood things about God and he hung his whole life on what is true about God. And that's what saving, justifying faith is about. God hasn't promised you a son or a daughter. 
But he has promised you reconciliation with God. He has promised that all your sins will be forgiven. Well, that's the substance of Abraham's faith. He believed the seemingly impossible promise of God because he believed in the limitless power and faithfulness of God. And so he lived by faith. Second, Paul reveals the resilience of Abraham's faith. Look at verses 18 through 22. Verse 18, how did Abraham respond when God told him that he would have a son in his old age? Well, Paul says, verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be, end quote. The little phrase here, hope against hope, suggests a tension between two realities that are invariably true. Two realities that are invariably true. The reality that God always fulfills his promises and the other reality that husbands and wives in their 90s never have biological children. It just doesn't happen. It never has happened. But nothing is impossible with God. Because Abraham was convinced that God is powerful enough to do all his holy will, he believed. He believed. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Now granted, when Abraham heard the news in Genesis 17 that this nearly 100-year-old couple was going to give birth to their own child, Abraham burst out into laughter. But apparently it was a kind of laughter that was more like unexpected, overwhelming joy than kind of the mocking laughter of unbelief, which we read about in Sarah, who when she heard, she kind of laughed and got rebuked for it. And it's interesting, isn't it? After Abraham laughs, and then his wife laughs, and then before the child is born, they're told to name him Laughter. And then when the baby is born, uh, Sarah talks about the birth and the joy of it, and she says, there is much laughter. Why? Because God did something that was so wonderful and so impossible. It just made them burst out into laughter and joy. And beloved, I don't know what you're facing right now, what you're struggling with. God hasn't made you this kind of promise. God has made you all kinds of promises. And he will fulfill them. Do not be discouraged. Do not allow yourself to make your problem bigger than God. It's not. It doesn't mean that he's going to reveal to you what he's going to do. He certainly didn't. He told Abraham what he was going to do, but he didn't tell him when. How long, Lord? Six months? Nine months? I mean, nine months at least? I mean, a year? Two years? I mean, now there's 20 years? Now there's 30 years? Now there's 40 years? Lord, did you forget us? Nope. The plan is going on exactly 
as God intended. Now, how do we know all of this? We know it is because his belief in God's pro- that, that his belief in God's promise that he would be the father of many nations was, according to chapter 15, verse 6, the means by which Abraham was counted righteous with God. This is what his faith was like. Nevertheless, we should not suppose that Abraham's faith was never tested. Paul says in verse 19, follow along with me now because this is, this is important. All of it's important, but I just want to draw your attention here, right? Verse 19. Paul writes, he, that is Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief, apistia, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, we need to think about this a little more deeply because we know the story of Abraham. We know the whole story. And we know that the faith of Abraham was not perfect. It wasn't perfect. And think about the two times he lied to the pharaohs about Sarah putting her in terrible danger for no greater reason than to protect himself. And he did it twice. And what about that time when he and Sarah, who were so befuddled by the fact that it's taking so long, and and they concluded by taking matters into their own hands that if they were ever going to have their very own son through Abraham, that it it wasn't going to happen through Sarah. And so she gave her husband over to Sarah's maid. And did they have a child? Yes. And was it a boy? Yes. It was a son, but it was not the promised son. Did Paul make a mistake here when he said Abraham's faith never wavered? No. I think, rather, it's safe to say that even though there were ups and downs, even though there were years of waiting, and that those years must have been extremely difficult for them, even though there were seasons of temptation and even terrible sin, Paul is looking at Abraham's life as a whole. In the end, Abram's faith in God's promise persevered. You see, beloved, justifying faith is not a faith that never doubts. Let me say it again. Justifying faith is not a faith that doesn't doubt. No one, no one has perfect faith. I know people 
over the years who have just really struggled with their salvation because they wrestle with, you know, when I walked that aisle, when I prayed that prayer, did I believe enough? And the answer to that question is, no, you didn't believe enough. But that's not the prerequisite for salvation. There isn't some kind of a scale that you have to attain to be perfect in your faith before God justifies you. No one has a perfect faith. Can I just make this personal? I don't have a perfect faith. I never have. But ultimately, saving faith perseveres to the end. Now listen carefully. When God looks at the lives of his children, he doesn't focus on all the bad stuff we've done. He focuses on the faith and perseverance that he is empowered in you by his grace. And by that grace, he sustains you. After all, it is he who has called you. He has justified you. He, in his mind, has already glorified you. You are his once you are his. And isn't this what justification is all about? It's not about us achieving a certain level of holiness or a certain degree of faith. It's not that we earn righteousness or earn anything, but that we are counted righteous as an act of free grace. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. And you say, now, now hold on, Pastor. Hold on right there. Are you, are you saying that hey, we don't have to worry about sin, that we, we can just sin all we please? Listen, Paul is setting this up in this way so that we will ask that question, and then a few chapters later, he's going to answer that question. And in brief, his answer is this. Shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Why do you want to become a slave of sin? And he has a lot more to say about that as well. But it doesn't take away from the reality that God justifies the ungodly. And Charles Spurgeon will say, if if you consider yourself righteous today, the gospel has no power for you. But if you realize what a wretched sinner you are, the gospel only works for people like you. God justifies the ungodly. He considers us righteous. In fact, when we get to Romans 5.20, Paul will say these words, where sin abounds... Grace superabounds. And, and if you're not convinced yet, then let me just lead you down this little biblical bunny trail. Think of the saints who are named in Hebrews 12. That is, is that, and when was the last time you read that list? Some of the people on that list I wouldn't have put on that list. <laughs> like, think of Barack, not Obama, the other Barack. <laughs> And what about Jephthah? He sacrificed his daughter? What about Samson? Really, God? Samson? I mean, if there ever was a flesh pot, 
I mean, that's Samson. I mean, he did everything wrong. How did he make it into the hall of faith? See, beloved, we see their faults. God sees their faith. We see our sin. God, listen carefully, God sees our Savior. Some of you need to grasp onto this. Not to make any excuses for sin. You pursue holiness. Pursue it. Understanding you're never going to achieve it on your own. In this life, you will, you will one day be made holy as God is holy. And not before. But it is your responsibility to fight against sin. Fight against sin. Fight against sin. And you will have victories and you will grow. It's sanctification. It's part of the sanctifying work of God that we are synergistically involved in. I don't know about you, but this does wonderful things to my soul to remind me day after day, God, I know you see my sin, but it's not the only thing you see. That sin, that sin, I did that. It's, it's all me. But my acceptance before you never wavers. Never wavers. It's all you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I know what a sinner I am. I know how unfaithful I can be. How unfaithful I actually have been. But because of the grace of justification, when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to me by grace, through faith. And so how do we live? We live every day by repentance and faith, by grace, through faith. It's not on our own efforts, although it involves effort. But even any effort that is successful in convicting us of sin or repenting of sin, even that is grace to you. This is what justification by faith is about. I remember a story that uh, somebody told me early on when I was trying to figure out what justification was like. It was about a guy who bought a, a Rolls Royce and he paid an enormous amount of money. I mean, the cars are, are handmade. And uh, so he paid this exorbitant amount of money and um, he gets in his new car, he starts driving, he gets up, gets up in the mountains and, and the thing dies, just stops. And... He has a, a, a walkie-talkie in his car back then, and he calls, and he says, hey, listen, my car is broken down, and uh, it's one of your cars. It's a, it's, a, um, it's a Rolls Royce. And within an hour, a helicopter shows up, and then a truck shows up. And they put the guy in the helicopter, and they say, where do you need to go? We'll take care of the car. Where do you need to go? And so he goes home. They, they take him home. And, uh, and, and then in the next few days, his car arrives at his house. And, um, and the guy's thinking, wow, that's wonderful. That was, I mean, that was great to get to ride in a helicopter and all of that. But here we are. I wonder how much it's going to cost me. And so he's waiting for the bill. He's waiting for the bill. He's waiting for the bill. And the bill never comes. Weeks, months. 
We get toward the end of the year, and he's thinking, you know, taxes and whatever else, exemptions. And so he, he calls Rolls Royce, and he says, hey, I just want to know when you guys are going to build me, because I need to pay this bill before the end of the year. Would you tell me how much it cost? And he said, well, what, well, what happened? Well, I was driving my Rolls Royce, and, and it had a breakdown, and, and they, the helicopter and the truck and they, the transportation, how much is that going to cost me? And she says, can you just hold on the phone for a little bit? Let me, let me do some checking. And about five minutes later, she comes back and she says, sir, I just need to tell you, I've checked on this and we have no record at all of a Rolls Royce ever breaking down. <laughs> have a nice day. When God looks at your sin, he sees Jesus. Where is your record of sin? It was laid on Jesus. This is what the faith of Abraham was like. It wasn't a perfect faith. It was a faith that was sometimes weak. But if Abraham was anything like me, he became stronger as he battled temptation to doubt God's promise, God's word. And when he considered his own body in the barrenness of Sarah's womb, he had to fight for faith. I mean, it says he grew in faith, which means it was weaker before. And as he fought the temptation to doubt, his faith grew stronger and God was glorified. God is always glorified when we fight for faith in our battle against temptation and sin. You see, Abraham's faith was not perfect, but it was a resilient faith. It was a persevering faith. And so we've seen the root of Abraham's faith and the resilience of Abraham's faith. And now finally, Paul reveals the results of Abraham's faith. Look at verses 23 through 25. But the words, quote, it was counted to him, end quote, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours, for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And the clear message here is that the amazing, this amazing gospel of justification by faith is not only for Abraham, it is for everyone who has a faith like Abraham's. Not a perfect faith, sometimes a faltering faith, but a faith that believes that God, is, God will fulfill his promise to those who believe. A faith that trusts in, in nothing other than God's promise that his death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ is God's only means of salvation. Do you believe that? That is God's promise to you. Do you believe that? Oh, brothers and sisters, is, is this truth still glorious in your heart? And if you lose that glory during the week, do you, is it restored when you come? There remains one more thing that I want us to consider. Paul says that the words, it was counted to him, were not written for our sakes or his sake alone, but for ours also. 
It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Now listen carefully. And raised for our justification. For our justification. Now what in the world does that mean? Now that's the question I asked myself this week. And my first pass at it was, huh, just keep moving, chapter five's next. <laughs> now we understand what he means by delivered up for our trespasses, right? I mean, Paul is pointing to Jesus' voluntary execution on the cross in our place as our substitute. The wages of sin is death, therefore Jesus died in our place. But what is to be made of this second phrase? What is to be made of this phrase where, where Paul says he was raised for our justification? Well, we might think that the resurrection is about Jesus' justification. Now, let me say that. It's, it's a different kind of justification. We might say the resurrection was for Jesus' vindication. In other words, that by the resurrection, it was demonstrated that Jesus indeed was the holy, harmless, undefiled Son of God, and that he was everything he claimed to be, Son of the Father. To be sure, this is, this is one of the reasons why Jesus arose from the dead, and it's one of the reasons that is portrayed in the Bible. But I don't think that's what Paul has here in mind. Rather, he says, it, this is, notice he doesn't say his justification. What, look at what he says. But he says Jesus was raised for our justification. Now what does that mean? I was tremendously helped by R.C. Sproul. Though he being dead yet speaketh. <laughs> R.C. Sproul was helpful in the sense that he gave me an illustration that I'm going to share with you. It's appropriate and necessary on, on occasions to understand that sinners are not merely sinners, but they are people in deep debt. They have a huge debt. In fact, we see that in, in Matthew 18, uh, the story of the, or the parable of the unjust steward, um, who incurred a debt that he, he couldn't pay back. I think it was something like, if you do the math, uh, 240,000 years worth of salary. And there's no way. I mean, there's no way. That's why Jesus tells the story, right? That's, that's your debt. You can never pay the debt back. Now, if we're going to understand Paul rightly, we need to understand that there's a difference between moral debt and monetary debt. Just hang in there with me. You're going to get this. In order, to, in order to clarify the distinction, Sproul offers this illustration. Okay, here we go. So even the children are going to get this, right? A boy goes into an ice cream parlor. If you don't know what an ice cream parlor is, there used to be such things, drugstores, ice cream parlors. Just think um, uh, Brahms. And a boy goes in by himself uh, to get an ice cream cone. He wants a double-dip ice cream cone, and the owner of the store makes the ice cream cone for him, and he hands it to the boy, and the boy takes a lick, and, 
And the man says, that will be $2. And immediately, it becomes evident on the boy's face that something is terribly wrong because his mother only gave him $1. And now he's in debt. He's indebted to the owner of the ice cream store because he has no way to pay. Now what? Now what do you do? Well, if, if I'm the guy standing behind this little boy, I hope that I would do what, what probably every one of you would probably do. You would reach into your wallet and you would pull out a dollar and you would hand it over to the ice cream store owner and you would make things right. Now, here's the question. Is the owner of the ice cream store obligated to accept your dollar? And the answer is yes. He is required. Why? Because... The debt is a monetary debt. And the U.S. government has stamped that dollar with the following words. I checked last night to make sure. And it says this. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And so, yes, the ice cream store owner has to take the dollar and settle the debt. So, the owner of the ice cream store is, in fact, obligated but let's change the story a little bit. This time the boy, the boy comes running into the ice cream parlor. He dives behind the counter. He creates his own double dip ice cream cone and uh, he makes a fast break for the door. But there happens to be a policeman at the door just outside and he, uh, he sees the boy and he hears the store owner crying out, stop, thief. And the policeman grabs the little boy by the collar and he forces him back into the store and he asks the owner, is this the thief that you're crying out about? And, and the policeman uh, or the, the owner of the ice cream store says, yes, absolutely, he stole two dips of ice cream, not to mention the cone. <laughs> At that point, I reach into my wallet and produce that dollar and hand it to the store owner saying, you know what, he's just a boy. Let's, let's just pretend this never happened. And I hand him the dollar. Is the store owner obligated to accept the money and pay the debt? And the answer is no. There's no obligation. Why? Because this is not a monetary debt now. This is a moral debt. This is a moral debt. The policeman says to the store owner, Sir, you do not have to accept that money. This boy has broken the law. He is guilty of petty larceny, at least. Would you like to press charges? And the man has every right to press charges. And he is under no obligation whatsoever to accept my vicarious payment and to cancel the boy's debt. There's no obligation. If he is a gracious person, if he's a merciful person, he might accept the substitutionary payment on the boy's behalf, but he is not obligated to accept it because it was not a monetary debt. It was a moral debt. When there is a moral debt, the offended party, listen, you've got to listen to this carefully. 
When there's a moral debt, the offended party is not under obligation to accept payment of a substitutionary nature on behalf of the guilty. But, listen carefully, my friends. Christ Jesus lays down his life for his sheep on the cross. He offers himself as the perfect his perfect righteousness, perfect innocence, taking upon himself the sin of his people and offers, listen carefully, he offers this payment to the person who is offended, namely his father. Jesus died, if Jesus died on the cross and stayed dead, you would have no justification. But when the Father raises the Son from the dead, He says to the world, I accept this payment. I accept this payment for these moral debts, these debtors who cannot possibly pay for themselves. And so the resurrection of Jesus is not simply a resurrection under his own vindication, although it was certainly that, but it was for our justification. It is God's demonstration to his unjust people that he accepts the payment in full for the moral debt that has been incurred by us. My friend, how will you respond to such grace? Your debt can be canceled this very day. All of your sins can be forgiven. The Son has offered payment in full with his own precious blood. The Father has accepted the transaction. Will you believe? Will you believe and receive God's declaration, righteous, as Christ is righteous. Will you pray? Will you ask? Will you plead? Will you receive to your everlasting joy? So now we finish where we started with this simple invitation, come, and rest your hope, all of your hope, in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Let's pray. Father, as we read this morning in David's Psalm 36, these things are too wonderful for me. They are too high. We cannot attain them. But we, in our, in our dependent way, we glory in it. We rejoice in it. We repent in it. And we praise your name for this as we will forever. Thank you. On behalf of every sinner in this place, saved by grace, we thank you. Lord, for accepting the payment 
that your son made on our behalf.